The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati. And today we have a very special episode for you. We are switching off from our competitive 40K talk about 9th edition because you know what? That is one foot out of the door. And 10th edition, well, that's one foot in the door. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a transitional style content as we hit this period of 40K history and talk about how to get better at 10th edition. What does that look like and how we're going to do it? So to that end, I've brought my good friend and former coaching client, Joel Ong from Singapore on today, and he's going going to tell us exactly how he plans to learn 10th edition. Joel, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Nick. I always appreciate talking to you. I always appreciate talking to you. And even if it's like a more formal coach student, or even as just like friends hanging out, it's always really fun. I think you have a great mind for the game. The way you codify your learning process, I think, is the real value that you can bring to this show. And I want to really unpack that. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us. This is episode 192. You're making my dreams come true by allowing me to continue providing this podcast for you all. So please do us a favor. Check out our Patreon, AOW40K.com. That's where we have part two of the show, and you can subscribe to get even more content. So the first half of this show is going to be free, obviously. That's what you're listening to. That's where Joel and I, you're going to get to know Joel. We're going to get to understand how he learns the game, how he dissects it, the information, and how he just processes and plans his Warhammer 40K. In the second half, we're going to transition a little bit more detail into 10th edition. That's where we're going to talk about what you look for when you're trying to learn a brand new edition, the volume of knowledge. We're going to take my experiences transitioning editions six times now and playing 10th edition at the U.S. Open Kansas City uh, exhibition game against Andrew Gagne with my Eldari versus his Astro Militarum. We're going to take all of this knowledge and Joe's magnificent mind for breaking down condensed information. And we're going to hopefully come up with a great strategy for how to tackle 10th edition in part two, which will be for subscribers only. Does that sound good to you, Joel? Sounds great. I I can't wait to start. I can't wait to start either. So why don't we just get right on into it? Tell me a little bit about yourself. What is your background? How'd you get into this game? So Warhammer for me was something that I I really, really was a big fan of as a child. Um, I love all the crazies. Um, your Drukhari, your Harlequins, your Black Templars, and more recently, your World Eaters. I mean, chain weapons, you hate cyclers, violence at its option. Sounds about right. Um, so during the teenage years, I was more of a guilty casual magic player. I won a couple of things, had a bit of cash finishes at larger tournaments, uh, played on blitz chess growing up. And uh, by day, I'm a project manager trying to help people better manage their health. Um, largely around things like diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterol, uh, working out of Singapore. So that's me uh, and coming into the game. I started as mainly a hobbyist during COVID when painting really helped to give me an outlet. Uh, as you can imagine, I was working at hospitality at a time. It was a very, very rough time. There was a lot of responsibilities in terms of helping my people get through it. Um, that took a lot of toll on myself. And I think Warhammer was a very welcome respite. Uh, I had a couple of casual game here, made some very good friends. You know, shout out to Yong Chang, Kian, and Natural Natra in Singapore uh, through the game. And I want to try a little bit harder. And that's where I started to look out to someone like you for coaching. Um, I think one of the things that I really love about 40K is that, you know, you can get meet really amazing people. And I, I've really benefited from a lot of them, uh, like from my local store, like Brandon, Kian, Bench, 
And even there's a guy called Sui, whom I've actually never met in person. I've only exchanged messages on WhatsApp, and he's been really helpful in improving the painting game. So that's quite fun. Um, I've played a couple of small tournaments so far. Uh, I did like a 2 1 at RTT. Uh, I made a finals for a team event, which is the most experience, most amazing experience, I want to say. And most recently, I went to play at a GT, playing on WTC, WTC terrain for the first time. That was amazing. Shout out to Heresy War Games in Thailand. Uh, they, I think they are running the competitive scene there. I went 4 1 1 for fifth overall with a lot of help from yourself. Um, and uh, right now, it's all about embracing the grey and the uh, random and uh, recording and accumulating all the ideas that never get fully fleshed out. So, very excited. Like, I'm really enjoying it right now. That's awesome. Lot to unpack there. So, talk to me a yeah. little bit about the the scene in Singapore. That's not really a place I've ever actually interviewed anybody from or been to myself. <laughs> I, I have no idea what Singapore is truly like, especially in terms of a 40k scene. So, how do you play 40k in Singapore? Uh, Singapore as a magic scene is it's not as large as we are a very small country uh, with about six, seven million people, give or take. Um, it's very, very metropolitan. There's a lot of people, a lot of expatriates who come in and out of the country. Uh, most of the people here really enjoy 40K, have multiple armies. So the scene here is mostly what you would expect at the upper end of the meta game. If you, if you were to go to any random tournament, you would expect to see armies that are mostly in the A or S tier, uh, maybe not so much in the B, C, D tiers, just because people have quite a few. Um, a lot of people here play on TTS, um, and I think they do quite well because you want to get a high volume of games. The community is not as large as, say, Magic or League of Legends or that sort of thing, um, but people do play a lot, and um, they like to travel. There's a lot of small regional tournaments, so if you think of in the US where you may be flying from one state to another, uh, in Asia, Singapore would be like one city in the US, then you'd be flying to some of the other cities within um, the region, and that's how most of the tournaments are held uh, by individual cities. Have you been able to get games consistently, and has that been a big factor for your progression as a player, or has it been uh, you know a struggle because of your lack of ability to play games? So my day job requires me to work on a project that has very intense periods and somewhat loud periods every now and then. So generally speaking, you know, if I can get one game a week, that would be a great win for me. Um, what I'm very lucky with is I think. Uh, there's a very high quality player pool in Singapore. Uh, why I say this is because I think a lot of them play a lot. They're very thoughtful about the game. Um, they pay attention to a lot of stats, a lot of what people are doing. There's quite a few of them who play on uh, TTS a lot. So they do get very high quality practice. So to be honest, I think when I am able to find games, it's not too difficult. And it's not too difficult to find very good quality games, which really helps because I think um, as I joked with one of the guys, Nachai, you know, I'm very grateful that I get abused in the games because, you know, you learn a lot. <laughs> you learn not to let a random lot discordant get into your backfield because that's a lot of behind the, behind enemy line points that you're going to lose. Right, I can imagine that's a steep learning curve. How different <laughs> is the game uh, Warhammer from Magic the Gathering? Obviously, it's got physical differences. It's not a card game, but... Uh, from scene to scene and experience to experience, what's your transition like? Um, I think the biggest transition is just the sheer amount of information available. So what I mean is, um, imagine the gathering, you know, if today a new set came out, you know, by the weekend, you would have multiple hundred people, thousand people, large tournaments, you would have tens, twenties, hundreds of thousands of games played online. 
So the matter gets solved really, really quickly. Um, the cycles move very, very fast. There's, there's a lot of data online. So I think one thing that has been very interesting is if you look at the way people broke down stats, uh, and there's, I know there's quite a few people who are doing that, um, both like in your stat checks of the world, or, you know, all of this, um, the amount of data that they process, and I'm not talking about rigor, just pure volume of data, is so dramatically different. So that changes a lot. So what I mean is if you were to be a magic player today and you wanted to know what's good in the meta and how to play it and what are the changes that are happening, you don't need to talk to someone. You can just go online, look at the right stats, look at the right sort of amalgamations analysis, and you could have a very good sense of what the meta is and what where the meta is going and what is the right thing to do. Whereas for Warhammer, I find that that's very different. You don't have an easy way to get what I would call like a net deck or a net list, uh, which means that you really get have to find a way to evaluate what you are seeing. And local matters and regional matters change a lot. Uh, one of the things that makes a big difference that I've noticed is if you look at Magic, it's one format, right? Let's say we just take the standard format. If you apply that to Warhammer, there's also one format, which is Strikebox or Match Play. But the terrain makes such a huge difference. So um, in Singapore, we mostly play GW terrain, which is one style of terrain. Um, but like when I went to Thailand to play at the GT, which was WTC, WTC terrain, it was so dramatically different. You get paid off for having smaller units that were able to bridge from one ruin to another. You could hide your army better. There was a lot more interaction. Um, and that changes the way you think about your lists. Um, and then I think in the US, when I watch some of the games, you have player place terrain, which again changes, which I've always found very funny because whenever I hear people on other podcasts talk about like player place terrain, it's either it is a shooting army's dream or it's a melee army's dream. And that can't both be right. But it is such a weird quote that for one format, you have such a diversity in the way people approach the game, in the way people approach the terrain as one variable of the game, that it is very, very interesting. And so as someone who likes to sort of break this down, look at the meta, um, and try to just generally enjoy thinking about the game, uh, it's very fun. Uh, it's something that you don't get to enjoy in Magic because too many people put too many games into the grinder and you basically have a very soft format really, really quickly. And I think um, part of the fun in any strategy game is you know, existing in that moment where the meta is in, in flux, it is shifting a little bit, is moving from one idea to another, is moving from one angle to another. And you have that gray space where people who are creative, people who have an idea they want to try and who have the right skills and abilities can really take it very far. You don't get that in Magic at all, which is something I've quite appreciated. And I think the other part about the game, which transitioning over has, has been very interesting, is uh, Magic tournaments tend to be nine rounds. Every round, round um, is about an hour. It's a 15-minute game. You play three games, and then that depends the round. Warhammer, on the other hand, is a three-hour thing, right? So you're going to be spending time with someone for three, you know, two to three hours at any given moment. Even your practice games are three hours. So... How many practice games can someone realistically get in? That's the first. The second is, you know, you, you really don't want to put yourself in a position where you're not enjoying the company of the person on the other side. Now, in a tournament, I get it. Sometimes, you know, there are salty players or it's not a great interaction. But generally speaking, the majority of your interaction is a very social game. You have to be able to engage with the other party. And that's something I quite enjoy because, you know, even casual games... A lot of that becomes something where if you are able to connect with that person and 
I think it's been described as playing by intention. Those games are really, really fun and really interesting because you're trying to pit yourself against another person rather than just one strategy against another strategy, which I really like. Does that make sense? It really does make sense, and I'm glad you brought 40k back to being a social game. And you actually hit some stuff I had not considered a lot when trying to break down the differences between Magic the Gathering or Warhammer. I myself have never played Magic the Gathering, maybe like literally half of a game once in a game store, like never at all more seriously than that. So mm-hmm. I'm, I grew up around it, though. Like I had tons of friends by hanging out at a game store that played Magic, competed in Magic, and this and that. And one of the biggest things is exactly what you said. They were ability there to grind games. Like in the same time where I would show up at my local, local game store, wait for someone else who played Warhammer to show up, get a game going and play a game. It's like a three, four hour process. Yep. That same, so they can play like 20 games of Magic the Gathering in that time. So it makes total yeah. sense that the meta for Magic is, is so much more soft. And just generally game to game, Magic the Gathering is a much more developed seen than a Warhammer, and not to say Warhammer is not developing fast. We're doing our best to make sure that happens, but um, you know, I do think that's an advantage for the game, to be honest. If you, if you don't mind me interrupting, please, please go because, ahead. Because I think one thing that I, I really appreciated was, you know, when I was talking to you and we were talking about approach to the game and through the coaching, like how would you approach the game in terms of like whether you are someone who uh, creates a game plan and executes on it, or whether you're trying to play the odds or you you know play the game on hard mode. I think as John described it, where he's always trying to make the best decision or in watching some of people like Skari, and it's about creating chaos and then trusting the ability to navigate in their chaos. There's a very large uh, skill expression of human or personality expression that Warhammer allows you to do because of the nature of the game that you will not be able to find in Magic. I mean, you can, but it is a very rare instance, whereas in Warhammer, like I find the ability to express yourself is something that I find unique to a lot of the best players, and the diversity in which they express themselves uh, is quite beautiful to see. I couldn't agree more. I mean, as someone who definitely likes to express themselves in the way that they play 40k, I really agree. Let me try to break that down just so I'm on the same page as you and make sure everyone's on the same page as us. You're basically describing identifying your play style and then playing to that style um, with respect to how you approach 40K. So I myself like to play defensively in corners, kind of problem-solve situations as they arise and generally stick to my strategy. So I build armies and play factions that allow me to take advantage of that stuff. I play very fast armies because I like to be reactive and like to just be able to move to solve my problems instead of just shooting real guns and hoping I roll hits. There are other players who, like Anthony Vanilla is a great example of a coach, who's pure aggro. You know, he's one of our hardware coaches, and he and I view the game at near 180 degrees opposite differences. And there's all kinds of different approaches. It doesn't have to be so broken down as aggressive or defensive. Uh, there's toolbox styles. Like you said, Scari, one of our other coaches, he likes to create a very complicated, chaotic board state that is not written on anybody's script and then just use raw 40K tactics to pro- kind of problem solve it. To that degree, there's a lot of creative freedom. Now, granted, not all those strategies are always going to be equally viable. Sometimes an army list or a type of archetype is just going to be stronger than another. But largely speaking, they can all kind of hang together. Is that just not the case you find in Magic or other games where people are kind of set into the plug-and-play, tried-and-true ways to play the game? No, I think think it's true to an extent. It's just more because... And this is a my personal view. It may not be right, or we may not agree, but 
in Magic or in a game where you have a lot of data that allows you to pinpoint uh, where the game is going to be, the first layer is people all know what is the most best thing to play and it's easy to acquire because there's no hobby like, right? Then the second layer is that because there are clear points of uh, interaction, then the second layer, if you were playing like someone like Game Theory, you were thinking about, okay, what would the person play? And you need to react to that. Um, those layers are very clearly defined in a way that um, it is quite ubiquitous across the format. So there would be generally one or two strategies that are the clear strategies to play. There will be two to three strategies that are the most interactive to that level available to play. And then every now and then you get an opportunity to find something that can wreck both of those layers. But that's rare. Whereas in 40K or in a tabletop setting, because the data is not there, it means that people have a little bit more conviction to try certain things, which creates a field where maybe everybody thinks that Iron Hand's successes is the best thing to play. There will be people who don't play Iron Hand successes because either they don't think the data is enough or they believe themselves to be correct, which could be equally valid. And therefore, they play something that is slightly different, which throws off what you think you should be doing. So I think that's where you can have armies that are like what I think you guys call gatekeeper armies or skew armies, where, you know, it's, you, you should play this army. Like everybody should play this army and there should be a right response. But because not everybody does, the response that you have, which is geared towards uh, that first level, may not be good enough. Um, and then you have to be able to interact to problem solve on the table or leading up to the table. And that's super fun because that means that, you know, when you start to think about, okay, I know this is the best army. This person is playing something different. Why is it that they're playing different? And what is it about that that is different to me? And how does that affect my strategy, which I may have prepared to play against the expected army? Um, that creates a lot of tension. And I think um, being able to navigate that is somewhat enjoyable. For me, I think, which maybe sounds a bit sort of sadistic, but yeah. Not at all. The problem solving and the like troubleshooting, like how to play the game to the way that you like while still competing at it is a huge part of the fun. Everybody wants to be that innovator, you know? Yeah. So let's transition the topic a little bit. I want to talk about how you actually approach learning 40K through through like a year or so of coaching you, I found an absolute fascination with your mind, to be honest, not to be weird about it, because the way you break down 40K and think about things in a very methodical, logical, sequential way, I think is really good for learning. And I think it's genuinely a great mental process to share with as many people as we can. So in your version of, of this story, how do you learn 40K? Um, so I think uh, I'll just caveat and say that a lot of this is me learning from people and just talking to people and trying to formulate. So this is not really my thing, more what I've learned from people. And I think, so the first thing is, and I think we had this and we discussed this at length when we first had a chat was, what was the goal that we had? And I think how do we orientate ourselves and, and the interactions we would have? And for me, you know, my starting point is I'm trying to balance like what I can achieve with what I can put in because end of the day, this is an outlet for me and we have obligations outside that we need to carry and I need to make sure I have a good handle on the perspective because winning or losing doesn't do as much for me as it does for someone like you where, you know, your content, your part of your reputation is about the quality and the standards that you set. So a lot of that started with what are my limitations? And so the first limitation for me was time. 
And second was like attention span. Um, you know, I think there are some people for whom watching the game is is great. Like they learn a lot, but it's very problematic for me because it means I have to pay attention for an extended period of time. Um, and that's not something that I, I'm normally capable of, to be honest. Um, and at, at the same time, you have to have enough understanding of the nuance of what's happening. So um, I think when we worked together, one of the first things that really helped was understanding that the knowledge on the field of what armies and what they're trying to do is not equal and how much of that knowledge is actually essential because do you really need to know every rule that AdMac is capable of versus what are the broad strategies? How do you codify them into broad buckets so that you have a sense of what is important to them? Um, thinking of those things, what I try to do is uh, before I listen to anything or I, I watch anything, I try to read first. I try to, in my own time, in my own space, um, read as much as I can about, say, a new codex. And I think this is where we're doing the homework. It really helps. So I try to figure out what's important uh, and how do they play the mission. At the point in time, it's what do they have advantage in the primary and the secondary. This is every given army or any given army, rather. From there, I try to form an opinion for myself on what I think the army does and what I think is important. And then once I have that sort of written down, I mean, and I think you've seen some of the notes that I put in, um, try to organize those thoughts into some like buckets that make sense to me. And when I have those buckets, I start to talk to people who I think would understand this better than I do or who have a great understanding of the game and then start to figure out why I'm wrong, because usually I'm wrong. Um, I'm very new to the game. Uh, I can't expect to be super knowledgeable about all the important things. Like when I first looked at it, I was like, Black 10 plus, hard to kill, high toughness, great. But actually, no, not so great, because you can, if you murder everything you meet, but you don't meet anything, then you're not murdering anyone, um, which is what I'm still unhappy about for 10, actually, for 10 plus, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> so it is starts with reading, it starts to create ideas of bucketing them that make sense to me, may not make sense to other people, and then validating them. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is I try to find lists from people that I think are very, uh, very clearly expressing the game in a way that identifies, that I can identify with, sorry. So what I mean is that um, if I were to play uh, an army, I would like to try and find someone or someone, some list that feels like stylistically the way I want to play the game, which is uh, about being very aggressive. I think I like to put pressure on. I like to think on other people's turns. That's maybe the magic or the blitz chess player me, I guess. And one thing about wanting to have that sort of experience means that you need to be the one posing the questions to people because then they're spending their time thinking about a response to you and so the more pressure you can put, and I don't necessarily mean pressure in terms of being aggressive. I mean, pressure in the sense of I have a non-interactive game plan that could score me 100 unless you do something. Or I have an army that will yell war and be in your face on turn one. Like, they're all different kinds of pressure, but pressure nonetheless. Finding the pressure that suits me, uh, playing the list or the variants that suit me and not changing those bits. Because I think... Anytime someone who has put a lot of effort into the game has put together a list, there's what I believe to be an elaborated understanding of the army and intuitive understanding of the army. So what I mean is, um, if you played, I think this was, we talked about Hill of Doom, 
like how you made a list for Hill of Doom versus how someone else makes a list for Hill of Doom, there is an element of elaborated understanding, which is, okay, these units are by far the most efficient. They should be grouped this way because this is the best way to use fire and fate. And this is the best combination of strategies that you would have. But there also is an element of intuitive understanding because this is where some of our biases come into play, where in you say, I have to, I like to play defensive, I like to set up my thing, and I want to counter strike versus someone who plays Hill as a, I'm going to table you. Um, that changes the list in some ways that I may not be, sorry, may not be immediately obvious to people. It implies a lot of the intuitive understanding and biases that you carry that are good and that could be bad. And so it's very important that when I play that, I try to get a few of it like, as much as I can. Um, obviously, I don't get the opportunity to play that many games, but you know, if I go into a game looking for these things, I find that that helps a lot because then you're paying attention. Um, 40k, because it's three hours, it's an hour and a half on either player's side, even if you're, whether you're playing club or not, that means that there's a lot of gap in between where you can be looking out for things, that you can have micro moments to sort of reflect on the decisions you've made. And obviously, some of these decisions, it really helps to have someone that can talk to you and fact check for you and critique it. Um, it's You learn a lot like by having a conversation with someone and being open to being wrong um, and being open to being, how do I say, surprised. Because when you think of something and you have a train of thought around the decisions that you have made, the interesting part about 40K is there's obviously variance, right? Dice game and variance come together. And it, variance in and of itself is a great thing because it means that someone who's weaker like me could potentially beat someone who's better or things be equal. But it also means that it leads you down reflections or decisions that you have made that may not necessarily be as grounded in fact as you think it is. And so a lot of like being able to process these thoughts is about cost correction and being open and willing to seek that cost correction. So I'm very lucky. I think as I started coaching with you, I managed to meet uh, some people in Singapore who have this similar approach. Maybe they don't describe it the way I do, but they're very, very open to learning and critiquing and having conversations about decisions. And one of them is like, I mean, two, one of them is my best friend, Yong Chiang. The other one is someone who I actually went to a GT with. I tried. They're both really, really good players. And the ability to have those conversations, I feel, is quite important to my process, I guess, if you want to call it a thing. So then it allows me to close the loop, which is uh, have an opinion, try to sort of mess around with that opinion. And based on what I've learned, get some validation from people that I trust in. And I think the trust is not always about skill. It is also about intention, which I really like as sort of a, a base point, which is the intention of we want to grow, we want to learn from each other. Um, and there's a lot that you can do with that. Now, I don't know if that will apply as I get hopefully better in the game at higher levels, but it is a loop of like sort of positive virtue that I really enjoy. Um, and the, the upside of that is I think you, if you are willing to have that sort of conversation with people, then it also allows you to make friends because, you know, you're trying to open yourself up, you're trying to learn, you're trying to connect with someone. Yes, it's true again, but so is a lot of interactions in life, though. Yeah, absolutely. In general, I mean, you, you basically, I love the way your approach is. You basically 
try something out, have an hypothesis or something, try something out, and then refine the process by talking to people. And you try very deliberately, I would say, not to just take the net listed tried and true. Um, you're aware of that stuff. You're definitely not being blind to it. But you also want to play something that fits your own personal style with respect to what the meta is and with respect to what your armies are and what your capabilities are. I think all that makes sense and it's very relatable. In terms of whether or not that process holds true as you can't climb up that competitive ladder, it really does. I mean, you can see it with Art of War as an example. Like, we have a team. John, Jack, Siegs, myself, Quentin now, like, and many more. We work together and, and sharp, steel sharpen steel. You know, that's how you get better at the game. It is never a one-person show. There, I've seen players who try and... They have their one coaching, their one uh, practice partner, and they just live in isolation with each other. Or, or one person just plays uh, endless games versus whoever's on the other side of the computer screen on TTS. And what often happens is that person has a perception that they are amazing at this game. And typically that person is very good at this game, whoever it may be, because they're playing a lot of 40K or thinking about 40K constantly. But they are they just have a missing gap in their knowledge of 40K. And whether that's in, about an entire faction that exists or a play style that exists or a lost condition for your own army that you simply haven't had someone explore into you yet, um, whatever that is, you can only know what you know and then what you can think to then learn. You don't know what you don't know. That's very challenging to just figure out on your own. And ultimately, by yep. bouncing ideas off of somebody else, that's what you're really bringing into your ecosphere. It's really, tell me what yeah. I'm missing. Yes, absolutely. And I think also recognizing your own bias, uh, it helps a lot. And so a very sort of tangible example I will give is uh, there are people who, for an 8-inch chart trigger reroll is something they will never contemplate. That's whereas me. there are people who would happily uh, wager the whole game on an 8-inch rollable charge and if I think it. the upside is high. Yeah, and I think as I go and I start to play more, I, I realize um, I like that. I, I, I kind of like the, I don't know if this is crude, but when it's worth it to put it on the table and be prepared to get it chopped off, you know? Um, I'm okay with that. And playing with people and seeking out games against people who are who for that that is a no-no, um, creates like very interesting decision trees that are very, very sort of fruitful, you know, for your own learning. Absolutely. And there's a lot of value to trying things the other way. It may be uh, yes. difficult and not natural <laughs> feeling at all, but uh, when I try to leave my corner in an aggressive approach, I definitely learn a lot in those games. So there's always value. Yeah. Likewise, and I think that's one of the things I really appreciate working with you because you see the world of 40K in such a different way, in a very specific way, that as I play more, I find I diverge away. That that difference is, is very good. Well, that actually leads me very nicely into my next question. So I appreciate the compliment there that you, that you think I see 40K in a very unique way. Um, You've been working with me for about a year on and off or so, and you've had a variety mm -hmm. of other experiences playing 40K, and you're obviously a very great skilled learner at things. So how has coaching helped transform your ability to play the game, and how do you think it will help you in the future or could help somebody in the future? Um, I think the, the largest thing that coaching has helped is that it has given me a very good frame of reference. And so what I mean is, I think starting out, the way I described it to uh, a few friends is in my day job, uh, a lot of what I do is about 
talking to people or interviewing experts in the field of what they are doing and trying to help translate what of, some of what they are good at and what they are thinking about into things that can be useful to people that need help in terms of whether they are trying to be more healthy for their family or trying to get control over their lives. Like Talking to some of these people really helps. And I think I apply the same sort of lens and same benefit that I get from coaching is you know, if I were to be someone who's interested in basketball, for example, and I have the opportunity to just be a fly on the wall in the, you know, San Antonio Spurs coaching room and watch how Greg Popovich does his work, like, that gives me a, a different frame of reference about what the game is about um, that I would never have been able to come to by myself because I'm leveraging on the years of experience that that person has put into the game. And, and that's a lot of what was what I was looking for when I started to reach out to you. And I think that helps me a lot because when you have a solid frame of reference and you are able to find someone who's able to give you feedback on your goals and your ability to invest in whatever you're trying to do, that gives you perspective. It gives you grounding and makes you motivated because you don't have unrealistic expectations. Like I'm not here saying, oh, you know, in six months or a year, I will win a GT. Like that's ludicrous. That's not going to happen, right? Well, if I get very lucky, but that's besides the point. And it, it helps me to function on what I think is important to the game. And from there, I think one of the things that really helped was identifying that, okay, you have limited time. This is your goal. This is your gap. This is the part that you miss the most because you have had that experience and you've paid for those lessons in your own way. Um, allowing myself to be very targeted in what I'm trying to learn, i.e., you know, Hey, Joe, what you really lack is the homework and the understanding of the macro archetypes in the games and the way army play. Having the ability to pinpoint that, super useful. Having the ability to, once you pinpoint that, do something about that, incredibly useful. And I think, you know, I'm sure I'll be knocking on your door for Ted, for sure. <laughs> That's actually what part two of our conversation is going to lead us into, is how we're going to approach learning 10th edition, you and I, and hopefully every other one else. Um, just to be a little bit more specific about it, I totally get what you're saying with the frame of reference. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's in a way quantifying what you don't know. Someone is kind of helping you figure out what everything is in the yes. world, what, how you figure it out. In your specific instance in relationship to 40K, how did I help you or Art of War help you create a frame of reference? Like, What does that actually look like in terms of your 40K growth? I think it starts with being able to identify what's important in the game, right? So we spent a lot of time breaking down what does an army need to do to win the game, whether it's a primary game, a secondary game, being very specific about each of the aspects of the game that's important and finding my place in it and creating the ability for me to understand the gaps. So pointing out, actually, when you're thinking about playing like Templars, you think it's really good at attacking and very tough. Part of playing the game is that you have to reach the other opponent. I know this sounds very simplistic, but as a newcomer to the game, you know, I see the new shiny thing that I like and I fail to see what's important. And that means that it doesn't mean that I have to stop playing Templars, but it means that I need to recognize that, be able to cost correct and say, look, you know what? I know that you don't really like Vanguard Vets, but hey, you have to put it in because if not, you're gonna you're not gonna get start the game, you're not gonna interact, and then you're gonna lose. And so specific to identifying the gaps in what you're trying to do, being able to provide a solution, I think it's very important. Awesome. So before we transition over to our 10th edition, more specific portion of this episode, 
uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to put some shout outs out there because I know you had some people or some clubs that you wanted to, you know, highlight a little bit. And since it's Singapore of all places, um, you know, that part of the world gets like no attention in the 40K universe. So I'd love to highlight it. Thank you so much. Uh, so uh, there's two shops I want to shout out. So the first one is uh, Gamer Service Rec in Singapore. Uh, it's run by a guy called Nick. He uh, does a lot of work to make sure that we actually even have the tournament scene. So most of the large uh, GT and the team tournaments uh, are run by him and his team. So I'm very grateful to him. The second is a store called Hammer House. Um, unlike, so on a different tangent, Hammer House is like a hobbyist dream. Um, it's run by a guy called Alex. Uh, it's a small store. But he basically packs it with everything that you can think of that is hobby-related. Any sort of brush, dry brush, terrain, texture, paints, it's crazy. Like, the only other place I see that is, you know, like uh, in the US. And that's really, really cool for Singapore. Because most of the brands that they stock aren't even from this side of the hemisphere. So that's that's awesome. That I would really like to show up. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and I'm you know, always happy to help grow the scene wherever it may be. So hopefully someone who maybe doesn't know that there even is a 40K scene in Singapore finds themselves in that neck of the world. They can check out those locations and hopefully even meet you, Joel. That'd be awesome. Please do. I would love to show people around Singapore. All right, everybody. That is pretty much going to conclude our first episode. Hopefully you got a chance to understand Joel's process, Joel's brain, and exactly how analytically driven he is. I'm super excited because I've had an absolute pleasure coaching you, Joel, through the course of the past year, and uh, I want to continue doing so through 10th. And, uh, you know, we only have so much information to work with and play with right now, but we're going to use what we can to talk about that in part two. So in part two, everybody, that is for subscribers, AOW40K.com. That is your URL to victory over there. Check it out. It's five bucks a month. You're going to get access to all of the part twos of this show, along with our wonderful Discord server, which you can access to talk to not only the entire Art of War community, but also all the various coaches that comprise the teachings of Art of War. And you can interact with them as we all learn 10th edition together. So stay tuned. Joel and I are going to break down the approach to learning 10th edition uh, in our next episode. Joel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Listeners, we will see you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. <laughs>